morning. What a reading, hey? It is God's Word. And uh, I got a little creative this week. I thought, okay, I'm going to ask someone to read this. And once they say yes, we'll tell them that it's two chapters long. And 38 especially is quite interesting. Uh, But you've said yes, so thank you. Um... As you can see, we are shifting gears. We have concluded uh, the letter of 2 Timothy. And the way the Apostle Paul writes, really, it feels like every quarter of a verse you, you, could, you could preach a sermon on, right? At least every half verse is full of theology. You have to unpack it. Well, we're going to Old Testament narrative here this morning and all summer long, really, in a series we're calling Joseph and the Gospel of Many Colors. And we're doing it for a couple of reasons. Here's the first. I mentioned a few weeks ago, actually, that we we believe here at Central that the whole Bible is God's Word. And because we believe that, we practice that, included in in, in the preaching of God's Word here at Central. So we're rooting ourselves in the Old Testament all summer, doing a series um, on Joseph, chapters 37 to 50, in the first book of the Bible. So there's part of the reason. The other reason is there, there, there's some really interesting themes happening. Um, we've talked about them in 2 Timothy. We've talked about them a lot, I think, lately. But there's another element to them. There's, there's the reality in this story of, of evils and sufferings in the world. We, we, we hear it even in these first two chapters. So we see that firsthand, that the evils and the sufferings that exist, and yet we're getting the narrator's perspective And we actually even see God's moving and intent in all of this as well. So we're not just seeing it take place as as you and I would see present evils and sufferings in the world. We're seeing it from a step back and the the God view on this stuff. And we're seeing the theme of his providence throughout this series, throughout these chapters. The providence of God. that, That stuff is happening, evils and sufferings. At this level, and yet God is working even in and through those things providentially. So that's a theme that's really um, beautiful and telling and important in this. Um, by way of context, this, this Joseph story, chapters 37 to 50, the conclusion of Genesis, really works as a bridge between Genesis and Exodus. If you read right in, in Exodus chapter 2, we see the birth of Moses and him being raised up to do what? To call God's chosen people out of Egypt. Well, the question is, how did they get there in the first place? Enter the Joseph story. We see that they're in this land of promise, but they leave it. They go to Egypt during a time of famine. That's all revealed through the Joseph story. So it works as a bridge from one book to the next. And it's really, really critical. In in Genesis chapter 12, we see uh, God beginning to make a promise and then a covenant with with Abraham, um, telling him he'll be the father of a great nation. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is significant. They're referred to not only in the rest of the Old Testament, but throughout the New as well. These these 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they are Jacob's sons. And and just a few chapters before we, we were here, Jacob wrestles with God. What a crazy chapter. 
And God renames him Israel. So interchangeably now for the rest of the book of Genesis, we see Jacob sometimes and him referred to as Israel sometimes. The 12 tribes of Israel are the sons of Israel, Jacob. And and specifically though, as we get into this story, right away we see um, this story of Jacob's, Jacob's descendants really being a story primarily about Joseph. A little bit about Judah. He's maybe a subplot character and and quite a a character in in the sermon this morning because he takes up all of Genesis chapter 38. It's interesting. I'll I'll tell you now. You'll you'll hear it again. But Joseph's this, this young man, 17 at the beginning of chapter 37, young man of faith, and he goes to Egypt and his story is about him really being really faithful to God. And it's this brilliant story. All the while, Judah is... One of the guys who's doing all this stuff to him, acting as he acts in chapter 38, which we'll look at. You know what's kind of a head-scratcher but beautiful? is The Messiah, Jesus Christ, will not come from Joseph's descendants, but from Judah's. Anyways, a little subplot. That's a bonus right there. It's free, as they say. Is anything free anymore? That was. There you go. All right. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this incredible story In God's word, Father, thank you so much that your word speaks. God, we can can look at the first book in the Bible. We have the privilege of unpacking some of it together this summer, and wow, it speaks today. God, thank you for that, that your word is living. Thank you that your spirit even moves in our midst and helps us hear your word and believe your word and be transformed by your word, and I ask that it would be no different this morning, that those things would take place, that we would give ourselves to the hearing of your word and living in light of it. I thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, right off the bat, we find out that Jacob lived in the lands of his father's sojournings. Right, he is, he is um, uh, following in the, um, the promise and the covenant with Abraham, and then right in verse 2, it says Jacob's descendants, and bam, all of a sudden it's, it's really about Joseph. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flocks with his brothers. He was a boy, um, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Bilhah and Zilpah are actually the servant women of Leah and Rachel, um, Jacob's wives. Jacob is tricked into marrying Leah. Then he works some more and marries Rachel. Rachel can't have kids at the time, and so she gives Jacob her her servant girl, and Jacob has a couple sons with her, and well, Leah sees that, and she's already had some sons with Jacob, and so she gives Jacob her servant woman, and Jacob has a couple sons with her, and And then Rachel eventually conceives a couple of sons. Joseph the first, a very special son, from his most special wife. Right away we see the reality. This is, again, very sub-story, but we need to make mention of it, I think, because it's just in our minds, isn't it? Like, all right, this is happening here. He's got children with all these women. What's going on? Well, this is a reality here um, of... The fact that um, polygamy exists, but the Bible never condones it. You know that? Right at the beginning, God creates man and says, it's not good for him to be alone. I will create a suitable 
helper for him. And it doesn't turn out to be four. I was like, dang, no, it's totally wrong. That's not true at all. I'm so glad Emily came to the first service. That's just weird. All right, but he gives him Eve. And they are a partnership, and they fit together, they work together, they complement each other. We see patriarchs even having the um, multiple wives, and it goes poorly. Leah and Rachel are such an example of that, right? Sarah and Hagar, this is, this is such an example of that. It doesn't go well. It's not a good thing. The best picture of all this is Ephesians chapter 5, Revelation chapter 19. We see Christ and his bride. How many does he have? Aren't you glad? The church is Christ's bride and he has one and he is faithful to her. That's the picture God creates at the beginning, at the end, all throughout. The reality is different because it's a bunch of fallen sinful people and perverts. So that's going on. And here Joseph is out in a field with Bilhah and Zilpah's sons, his brothers from different mothers, but literally brothers. And right in verse three, uh, 2, actually, we see the very first descriptor of Joseph. You know what it is? Joseph is out in the field with his brothers, and he comes back and gives a negative report of them. Here's the first descriptor of Joseph we find out. He's a tattletale. What a punk. And in verse, in verse 3, we find out a little bit more. We find out that Joseph is the son of Jacob's old age, and he is his favored son the first son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Right, God opens her womb, and he is old when Joseph comes along, and Jacob is happy with him. He loves him more than all the others, and they all know it. And if he wants to make it even clearer, he gives him a present that none of the other sons get, and it's a Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> the other brothers are jealous. Actually, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, uses the word, gives him a present, a coat of long sleeves. So it may have been colorful. It likely was because it was like a royal robe and it had the fabrics and the colors that nobody else really wore. It was expensive, but it was, was long-sleeved to the wrists, to the ankles. And you know what's significant about that? None of the other brothers would have been wearing anything like that. They would have been wearing the sleeveless robes, the shorter robes. Why? Because they were laboring in the fields. They were picking up sheep. They were tending to the fields. They were laboring. But Jacob gives Joseph a splendid, royal, long to the wrists and the ankles robe which says also you don't have to do the work your brothers have to do you're special you're my favorite I love you more that's do you see the climate look at verse 4 the brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him can you imagine that maybe you can maybe you've been in that kind of environment where literally I'm just going to keep my mouth closed because if I say something, I can't even say a nice thing about you. That's what's going on. If the dad, if Jacob's getting all the sons, all the family together, let's have a big family meal, all the other brothers are just, and they just bolt out of there because they cannot say a nice thing to Joseph. They can't. They won't. And then it gets even worse. He's a tattletale. He's the favorite son. He's got the Technicolor dream coat. And then he has two dreams. And you know what he does with those dreams? Maybe he's just naive, but he tells these dreams to his brothers. 
Behold, guys. Okay, we, we were binding up sheaves, the wheat. We were binding them into piles, the sheaves. That's what we were doing. But wait, behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, guys. And behold, your sheaves gathered around my sheaf that was standing up and they bowed to me. He doesn't stop there. Verse 9, he dreamed another dream and he spoke another dream. This time his dad's around. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Like, are you referring to, like, Jacob's like, are you referring to us? Like, am I the sun and your mother's the moon and your brothers are the stars and we're bowing down to you? Yeah. Look at verse 8, look at verse 11, look at the climate of the family life right now. Verse 8, they hated him even more for his dreams and words. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. They are seething, they hate him, and they are jealous of him. And Jacob is clearly a below average, I'll say it on Father's Day, right? Jacob is a well below average father. He's created this climate, and I don't think he even recognizes it, because you know what he does? All the other sons are working hard in the field. Joseph doesn't have to do that kind of stuff, but Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers in the field and check them to see how they're doing, clearly not understanding what kind of a risk that is, clearly not understanding how much his brothers hate him. And I meant to say it earlier, but I'll say it again. This isn't a special Father's Day text, by the way. But as I was studying it, I realized maybe it is. There are a bunch of dudes in these verses, and they're doing stupid stuff. This is the perfect Father's Day message. So Jacob, clearly not understanding what's going on, sends his brother to the boys, the brothers in Shechem. Sends Joseph to his brothers. And this is where, um, look at verse 19, where things go from bad to worse. The brothers said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. There's the plan. They see him approaching on the horizon and they say to each other, let's kill him and see what comes of those dreams. That dreamer, we hate him. And this is where uh, the first point, I think, really massive um, storyline here that's woven throughout this whole story and we get the first glimpse of it here and that's the first point. The providence of God is always at work. It's always at work here and now. It always has been at work and it's clearly at work here. The providence of God is always at work. Here's what providence means. Providence is providing for or sustaining and, uh, yeah, pro- providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. Said another way, providence is that preservation, care, and government which God exercises over all things that he has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. God is therefore creating, he has created the universe and people in them and all things are working together for his ultimate redemptive plan and there's all of these sub-stories that work into it and he is working in and in control of all of it. Let's see how that applies here in the story. Look at verse 15. We see Joseph obeys his father. So he's a bit of a tattletale. He's green behind the ears, and yet his dad tells him to do something. Go check on your brother. He's, okay, here I am. Yes, okay, I'll do that. He goes to Shechem, and they're not there, and he even goes on 
So he's very faithful. I mean, if my dad told me to go to Shechem to check on my brothers, I'd go to Shechem. Oh, they're not here. I'm going home. He's very faithful. They're not there, and he continues on. Many more miles, actually. But here's the providence of God at work. Joseph arrives in Shechem, and they're not there. But there is a man there wandering around. And this man, who happens to be in Shechem, happens to hear the brother saying, let's go on to Dothan. And so he's there when Joseph arrives, and he tells Joseph this, so Joseph can actually continue on and go to Dothan. Joseph gets to Dothan. The brothers see the dreamer approaching. They say, let's kill him. They start by ripping off his robe, throwing him into a pit. Stop there. Have a bite to eat. It says they eat lunch. These guys hate their brother so much that after they throw him in a pit, what's between throwing him in a pit and killing him? Having a sandwich. These guys are not... They, they, do, they, do, they hate him. They're jealous of him so much so that they can just sit down and eat, take a break. But what happens providentially while they're having a sandwich? A caravan of Midianites, slave traders, shows up while they're having lunch and they switch gears. Let's not have our brother's blood on our hands. I mean, he is our brother, after all. They suddenly get a conscience, very slight. And they decide, in their hearts, what they desire to do is to sell him to slave traders who can ship him off somewhere. They can still do their plan and put goat's blood on the coat, do away with the dreamer. But do you see God's providence in that? There was a man in Shechem who knew that the brothers went to Dothan. They got there, and just before they go to kill him, a caravan comes by. Here's what God's providence means in all of this. These brothers who hated and were jealous of Joseph What did they desire in their heart most to do? Get rid of the dreamer. And they did that. That was 100% what they desired to do. You know what else is really interesting? God, 100%, not reacting to that, but in that, desired to use their hatred and their willful act for a grand redemptive purpose. God is not just reacting to that and, oh, I'll make a way now. He's in that. The thing about the providence of God is is, is that we don't really get to see that when it's happening here and now. The sufferings and evils in the world, they're happening and we just react and it's hard. But we're getting this view now from the narrator and from God's perspective. Look at what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says about it. The secret things belong to the Lord. Those are the things that belong to the Lord. The secret things, the things that are not revealed. But the things that are revealed belong to us. Joseph and his brothers and then his father, when he finds out, all they get is what's revealed. But what was going on was God was working that for redemption. It's a powerful reality. It doesn't mean that suffering doesn't hurt. It just means that, as Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There's two really important words there. All things work together for good. Not just some things, everything, all things, everything. It even says in the Old Testament that even the casting of lots determined by God, meaning if you were to go to Vegas, this is hypothetical. Throw the dice, God determines how that falls. That's what it says. God determines the casting of the lot, the throwing of the dice. God determines it all. He's in it all. He's in everything. 
and we willfully submit ourselves to whatever's going on there. The, the brothers did what they wanted to do. Look at Acts chapter 2. This is exactly what Peter says. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was 100% God's intention and definitive plan and redemptive purpose to kill Jesus. 100% His. But the, these, He was killed at the hands of lawless men that in their hearts hated and were jealous of Jesus and did what was in their hearts to do. And they are responsible for that. Both things happening there. And we know that all things work together for good. There's the all in every little thing and work together for good, ultimate good. It doesn't say that all things work together for the fun of believers. It doesn't work out for the good times role for the believers. Right? All things work together for God's good, ultimate purposes, and the good of those who trust in Him. We know for those who love God, all things to work together for good. You can trust that, even in the midst of suffering. I would argue that Joseph clung to that, even by the way he handled himself as things went from bad to worse. We're going to press pause on the issue of providence because it's woven through this whole series. and It's something really critical for us to understand. So we'll keep coming back to it, but we're going to move on and see what else is really clear in, in, in the latter part of chapter 37, and that's this. The righteous one suffers and saves the unrighteous many. You see that happening here? The truth of the matter is all biblical heroes are shadows of Christ. That's how we need to read the Bible. We're not doing the Joseph series this summer and telling everybody, be more like Joseph. There were admirable things. He was a man of faith. We can look at Joseph and say that was a faithful man. And yet what we are called to do is see the God revealed in this story. And, and in Joseph, there are just shadows of Christ in him. We look at Joseph and we glorify God because he's ultimately the one working and the one to be glorified. There is a shadow of our Savior in this story and in what happens here. Look at it with me. When they, the brothers, see the righteous one, Joseph, that God designated to save their lives, acting in obedience to his father, their first inclination is to kill him. God is sending him to Egypt for his dreams to actually be fulfilled in Egypt. This slavery had to take place for the dreams to take place. But listen to this and hear Jesus in it. When they saw the righteous one that God designated to save their lives, acting in obedience to his father, their first inclination is to kill him. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and yet the crowd's ultimate response is what? Crucify him. And in his case, there is no providential Midianite traders to come along and spare his life. His life for ours was the sovereign redemptive rescue plan of God. The difference being for Joseph, his life was spared and by sparing his life, he could go to Egypt, know a famine was coming, react to it, all by God's grace and revealing it in dreams, and spare his covenant people. That's how his redemptive plan happened there. But for Jesus, he came and he was not spared. He died so that you and I could go free. It's the gospel. We're getting the first shade of it here in the story. Joseph and Jesus became a slave. They became slaves, even prisoners. Sold for pieces of silver. Did you catch that in the story? 
The brothers sold him for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus, betrayed by Judas, his disciple, for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers. Jesus, betrayed by his disciple, stripped of their garments. Slavery, imprisonment, sold for silver, stripped of garments so that God's covenant family could eventually walk free. Joseph and you and me. The righteous one, Jesus, for the unrighteous many, you and me. The gospel, we see it in the first book of the Bible, shadows of Christ. It's all about him. We're going to transition now to chapter 38. Made the last two weeks of my life not very fun, to be honest with you, chapter 38. Oh, As we transition there, there's a couple of really interesting themes that are happening in this story. I just want to point them out. Subpoints, freebies, if you will. It's a theme about goats. Goats are ridiculous. Have you spent much time looking at goats? Hearing goats, they're annoying. All of it. Goats, strange animals. In the Judah and Tamar story, it's the third generation of some storyline involving goats. And the storylines involve deception and selfishness, twisted sin. Rebecca dresses her son Jacob in goat skin so that when his blind dad Isaac goes to give him Esau's blessing, he feels him that he's a hairy man, <laughs> like his brother Esau, deceived with goat skin. Jacob pays the price for that, doesn't he? Because his son's out in the field Take Joseph's royal robe and dip it in goat's blood and bring it to him and tell him, Dad, look what's happened. He himself is deceived with a stupid goat again. Tamar shows up to Jacob's son Judah, poses as a prostitute. What do you pay me? I'll give you a young goat. Judah is deceived. Generations wretched sinners like you and me (laughs) with dumb goats there's another theme runs through all of Genesis and continues on land, seed and covenant very significant for Abraham promised land you will have descendants I will covenant with you says God I will make you a great nation I will do this he says what does Judah do? first thing we see in the beginning of chapter 38, leaves his family, meets his best friend, Canaanite buddy, uh, Hora, Hira, marries a Canaanite woman. Can I tell you something? In Genesis chapter 24, you, you know what Abraham says to one of his servants? Look at what Abraham says to one of his servants. He made his servant swear that he not, would not take a wife for his son. That means the servant's son would not take a wife or his servant's son from the daughters of the Canaanites. And here, a couple generations later, Judah in the family line himself is taking a Canaanite woman as his wife. He's abandoning the land, he's abandoning the seed, and therefore rejecting the covenant. He's turning from his faith. All in the first couple verses of chapter 38. That's Judah. Get in the picture? He's the guy who just sold his brother into slavery. It was his great idea as well at the end of 37. That's Judah. And now we continue on. Shua, his Canaanite wife, gives him three sons. Who their children married was extremely significant to the patriarchs. 
And he marries a Canaanite woman. She, get, she bears him three sons. Ur is the first. And we see this really interesting verse where we see that actually because of his w- wickedness, God puts him to death. Strange verse. Um, it's one of those verses, again, it's, it's kind of a sub-story. We see it there and it's awkward. and We don't know what to do with that. I'll say a couple things really, really quick. And I don't mean to be trite. I mean to be fast. <laughs> Everybody dies. Unfortunately, for numerous reasons, some people die young. One of those reasons appears to be one of many reasons. And do not say that that you could ever sit in the seat and say, this person died because of this, because of that sin, because he was wicked. We have, again, this removed perspective. The narrator is letting us in. In this situation, he is killed young from his wickedness, and he will stand before the judgment seat of God. There's two things we know. All will be judged, and all will die We see here he dies young and God sees that he's wicked and will face punishment. That's a storyline there. That's a just and holy God. And it's just a sub-story. And yet it's all. We're going to see the grace of God, the loving God as well. All of this is happening. But you know what happens with Judah when he rejects his faith, rejects his land, rejects his family. He is not fathering his sons well. And it turns out that Ur is a wicked man and he dies. Onan is meant to... um, to commit a Leverite marriage, meaning his Ur was not able to give Tamar sons. And so at the time, even to Jesus' day actually, the next brother was supposed to have a Leverite mar- uh, marriage, which meant that he would give children to his dead brother's spouse if she had not yet had children. Awkward, yes. But that was the way that it worked because you depended on kids and Ur did not fulfill that and give her some, and so Onan is next in line and is supposed to. Judah believes, and it looks like Onan is doing that, and yet it says he spills his seed, spills the semen. He does not impregnate Tamar. Strike two, we also see that Onan, because of that wickedness, is killed. Chapter 38. It's been fun. All of this is going on. Judah doesn't see it doesn't see it that he's the father of wicked sons, and really he's very responsible in this, he starts to look at Tamar and go, wait a minute, I gave you to Ur, now he's dead. Gave you to Onan, now he's dead. Something's wrong with you. So this is what he does. I'm sending you back to your father, to your father's house, until my third son is of age. That was a blatant lie. He had no plans of doing that. That was an excuse. So he released himself of his duty to her, which was she was married into his family. He was meant to take care of her. He had not fulfilled that. His sons had not fulfilled that. And now he's sending her back to her family home and deceived her in the process. And now things switch gears. When we see, when, when, when Tamar hears that his third son has come of age and there was no plan that she was going to marry him, that he was going to give her to him. She takes matters into her own hands, removes the widow's garments as she's at her father's house, and puts on a veil and stands in the street in the path to which Judah will be traveling. As he does, he approaches her, not sure if she planned on looking like a prostitute or just confronting him, what the deal is, but he sees her, thinks she's a prostitute, propositions her for sex. She says, sure, what will you give me? Young goat. Time's time's changing. She says, well, there's no young goat here. What do you give me in the meantime? I'll give you my staff. Or what do you want? Your staff, your signet, or your seal, and the cord. The cord is just, it's like a necklace, and around it he's got his, the family seal. 
This is, this is his identity. This is his social insurance number. This is his driver's license. This is his credit card. These reveal who he is. She took those until the young goat would come. Well, he sleeps with her, takes off, sends his buddy, because he's probably quite embarrassed, go give her the young goat, get my stuff back. He goes, she's not there. They go, we're going to be the laughing stock of the town. The town says, there's not even a prostitute that hangs out there. I have no idea what you're talking about. They've been duped. She has his things. They say, let's forget it. Let's get out of here. Then, <laughs> so much to say. So little time. Uh, then, Judah gets word that Tamar is pregnant. And what does he say? Bring her out. Let's kill her. Why? She's an adulterer. This judgmentalism, this selfishness, this deception. He's that guy too. He's not pulling himself out. He's not calling himself to the carpet. She's pregnant? She's an adulterer. Bring her out. Let's kill her. And what does she send out? The staff, sign it in the court. Whoever these are is the one who made me pregnant. And this is really, really significant. When he sees that, he is dumbfounded. He is stopped in his tracks. He is not just found out. He is repentant. This has absolutely bulldozed him. In verse 26, we see him say this. Judah identified the items and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah. We're going to see Judah show up a lot more times this summer as we go through this story. But let me tell you this, I won't get into that. This marks the beginning of his transformation. This repentance right here, verse 26, marks the beginning of his transformation. It's the third point. Transformation begins with repentance. And he does that here. And his life will be forever changed. He will even give his life for Benjamin, for others, later on in the story. It reminds me of John the Baptist paving the way for the Lord of Jesus Christ and what he said in his ministry of, of Peter as, he, as the apostle begins the early church. You know what the first word on their tongue is, tongues is as they preach? Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and be baptized. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. It's the beginning of transformation. True repentance. That's what Judah does here. And it's so significant. Repentance is not a, hey, sorry about this. Hey God, sorry I do this thing, but to be honest, I love it and I have no intention of stopping it. I'm going to continue to do it because it's great. I feel bad. I'd like to say sorry so that my sins could be forgiven, but I'm, I'm here, I'm focused, I'm... It doesn't matter, right? It's that, it's that, forgive me my sins, Lord, prayer, but you don't mean it. You're not talking about specifics. You're not even really wanting to change. You just feel guilty, but you're still sitting in it. You're just saying a trite sorry, but you're not removing yourself from it. Repentance is very different. It marks the beginning of faith, but it is the life of a person of faith over and over and over again. A life of repentance. It's critical. Why? Because for us to repent means we repent of our sins and take Christ's righteousness for us because we recognize I can't do it. And that is really critical. We repent of our sin that's just detestable before a holy God and we see it as such. And if we're truly repentant, we say, I want to turn from this and I want to go to Jesus. I want to turn from this way and pursue righteousness. It's an absolute change. It's a turning from something, desiring to do it, 
and putting faith and dependence on Jesus and choosing to walk another way, dependence on Him. It doesn't mean we won't struggle. It doesn't mean we won't sin. It doesn't mean we won't have temptation. It doesn't mean that, but it's that desire in our hearts that say, this thing is wicked before a holy God and a desire to live for Jesus. And it's the repenting of that thing from our hearts and turning to Jesus dependently and saying, I want to live for you. I choose righteousness. I choose Christ-likeness. And I want that. And that sometimes is missing in the lives of many believers. I go days. I sometimes go weeks with little prayers of, sorry God, for being a sinner, I need you, and moving on, and not sitting there and going, Lord, why do I choose this thing that is foolish? What am I doing choosing this stuff that doesn't satisfy, and yet I'm pretending that it does, and I'm going back to it over and over again? I act like these things are more important than you. I hate that. Forgive me, Lord. Make Christ more glorious than that. I need you. I believe that. I'm not showing it to you, but I want that. And having that honest, angst-ridden prayer of repentance, that is a regular part of our prayer. Have you been there lately? Have you prayed that way lately? Lord, ah, I repent. Reminding ourselves of our need. Repentance is critical. Turning from sin. Turning to Jesus. Dependence on Him. Transformation begins with repentance. Repent and believe. There is a beautiful final point here. It has a lot to do with Tamar in the story. Here's the point, the fourth point. We'll unpack it. Faith in a gracious God redeems the most colorful of characters. This one makes me smile. Doesn't that make you smile? I mean, do you not see it there? And as you think about Tamar, you're not thinking about nearly every other character in Scripture. If you're being really honest, are you not being thankful because it reminds you of yourself? Faith in a gracious God redeems the most colorful of characters. Tamar is one of them. She looks like a prostitute on the street. She has devised a plan where Judah has not been faithful to her family. She is actually being faithful to her family. This is the family that I have married into and I will get sons from it. And you know what she does. The firstborn is Perez. Perez. And you know who Perez will be? The great, 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 somewhere in there, father, in law, father of David, King David? Perez. You know who's going to be the great, 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 somewhere in there? Mother of King David? Tamar? Unbelievable. You know who comes after David in that line? The Messiah. Jesus. Tamar. If you read one of those genealogies, they're always fun, aren't they? Genealogies, a bunch of names, can't pronounce most of them. You're like, blah, 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 blah. Like, why is this here? Something really interesting in Matthew chapter 1. 14 generations, then King David. 14 generations, then um, sla uh, slavery in Babylon. 14 generations, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Four women other than Mary are named in... I can't do math. 14, 14, 14. 42? Yes, thanks. Yes, I'm not a math person. Even ad ad addition. Um, four women in 42 generations other than Mary are mentioned. You know who the first is? Tamar. You know who the second is? Rahab the prostitute. You know who the third is? Ruth. Not an Israelite, not the right woman. You know who the fourth is? Bathsheba. That woman who was married to another man that King David saw bathing naked on a roof and said, 
I'm going to have her. And then Mary, teenager. These are the women. Faith in a gracious God redeems the most colorful of characters. She was faithful to the covenant family when Judah wasn't. She was the wrong wife but saves her family by loyalty to it. We're not required looking clean and perfect all the time. We're required faith in a holy God who can do what we can't. Pay for our sin. Faith in a God who does what we cannot do. Faith in a Savior who is much like un- unlike us. But saves the colorful characters along the way. Is that not amazing? I'm going to tell you a story to close. It's a colorful story as well, to be honest. It's provocative. But you know what the thing is? I, the reason I tell it is because it's actually not as provocative as Genesis 38. <laughs> It's a modern story. It's uh, from a book my wife read called Lost Girls, an unsolved American mystery about a, 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 a number of murders that happened in Long Island. And they're unsolved. Their bodies were found. And it was, it was young women who were escorts. The first portion of the book talks about how they got there, the upbringing of all these young women. We're going to look at one here. Her name's Amber. And this is what it said. With nowhere else to go, Amber worked a little for Crystal. And one night she went by Crystal's place at the Governor's Square Apartments near Carolina Beach and they smoked crack. They talked about the rape. Amber had been raped. They talked about the rape and cried together. Crystal thought the drugs must have been to help ease the pain. She could relate. She didn't want to deal with the stuff flashing in her head all the time either. By dawn, the crack was gone. They didn't have anything to help them come down. Amber started crying again. She wanted to get go and get out more, uh, go and get more, but Crystal said they should stay there. Amber kept crying, so Crystal held her like a baby. Then Crystal started praying for her, telling her it was going to be okay. Have you ever prayed before? She asked Amber. Yeah, Amber said, I pray sometimes. Well, are you saved? Are you a Christian? I think I am, but I don't know. Let's be sure, Crystal said. She said the sinner's prayer, Heavenly Father, I know that I have sinned against you and that my sins separate me from you. Amber repeated it after that and received Jesus Christ. Amber stopped crying. She smiled a big smile and gazed upward, weeping gratefully, praising God, praising Jesus, praising and praising until her voice was a hollow whisper. Crystal sat there and watched her, thinking how blanked up it was, coming down off a crack high and praising the Lord. You know what we're good at in the church? Really, really good at. We're good at clean. We're good at appearances. I'm really good at it. Not as good at humility, but I'm really, really good at looking clean. Right? Because the goal is to know Christ and you become more Christ-like. There is a sanctification. There is Christ-likeness. There is righteousness that comes. But for all of those feeling like we're in the, the midst of the mire and the muck and the ugliness of it, we say, well, I have to fake it because everyone else looks great. We're good at clean. But we have a scandalously gracious God 
who's used messy people from the get-go and says, it's not about you anyways. It's about my glory and I clean up messy people. That's what I do. So seek righteousness, yes, but if you're a mess, it's what I do. I make beautiful things. That's our God. We're good at looking clean. I'm so thankful that actually this this morning falls on, on the Cyrus Center morning because these are the kinds of stories that actually get told there. You see behind why a girl becomes a prostitute. You see why teens become drug addicts. There's a reason they smoke crack. It's not because they're just naughty kids. Can I tell you something beautiful? As Amber and Crystal smoked crack that night, God met them there and said, this is what I do. I'm going to come real close to you broken girls. He calls the church to be a light to the city. Would we be that to Chilliwack? Would we be that to Agassiz? Would we not look at people and say, you're too far gone. You look messy. Our message isn't for you. May we never do that. But there's something else you need to know. Some of you carry the weight of hidden sin. Some of you feel not good enough. Can I tell you something? I'm not saying because I feel like it. I'm saying because the scriptures tell us this. Jesus loves you. He loves you. You need to know it. You need to know it. Jesus loves you, scandalously so, not because you're looking clean, but because you're broken and you recognize you need him. So if you need to repent this morning, I encourage you to repent because he's waiting with open arms. He's a gracious God. He sent Jesus for you and for me. He loves you. He's scandalously loving and gracious. That's the God we serve. He loves you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. That part A of the story in this, this passage certainly shows us that we are people of spectacular sin. If there is one thing we do well, it is sin. You know that and we know that. But That's only part of the story. You are a God who has had a redemptive plan from the beginning, drawing people to yourself. And you take people out of the messiness of it all and reveal yourself there. Thank you, Jesus. I pray you do two things for us this morning, that you would make us people of repentance, recognizing there is a scandalously gracious God before us who will take us as we are and will point us to Christ. I love that. And there is a world around us who is not being served by our cleanliness looking. Lord, would you take us, maybe even through the ministry of Cyrus Center and through many other means, into the dark places of our city, that light would shine bright in those places. For Lord, that is what you do. And we are grateful for that because we are recipients of that, everyone who calls on you. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name and we praise your name. Amen.